Welcome once again to the Yoga and Body Image Coalition podcast. My guest today is Teo Drake. Teo is a spiritual activist, an educator, a practicing Buddhist and yogi, and an artisan who works in wood and steel. As a blue-collar, queer-identified trans man living with AIDS, he has 101 reasons to not want to be present in his own skin. The physical and spiritual practice of yoga and Buddhist traditions made it possible to begin to heal and to feel at home in his own body. When he isn't helping spiritual spaces become more welcoming and inclusive of queer and transgender people, or helping queer and trans folks find authentic spiritual paths, he can be found teaching martial arts, yoga, and woodworking to children. His writing can be found in the anthology Yoga and Body Image and at the blog Ritz Grow the Tree. Thank you so much for joining us, Teo. Thank you for the invitation. This is awesome. It is awesome. Uh, I learned so much from your writings and from your uh, various conversations. And one of the things that come has come up in a previous conversation you and I had was this concept of radical welcoming and why uh, that is so important to doing the kind of yogic and spiritual and activist social change work that we do. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean or what you think about or feel when you when you um, uh, address radical welcoming? Yeah, you know, radical welcome is this concept that um, moves us beyond invitation, right? It, we often have stayed in a place where we have, um, because it's comfortable, we invite people into our world, right? And it's, but it's simply a matter of, of, of knowing that my world won't change, right? That's a very safe place to be. And it can come from a very kind-hearted place, right? We saw that, we've seen that over and over again with various civil rights um, initiatives. But really what radical welcome is, it's that revolutionary um, leap of faith that means that, that I am willing to be changed. I'm willing to par actively participate in co-creating a world that I can't yet see in order for you to fully show up. And that's you as, as an individual, that's also communal, right? That, so it's really that idea that I am willing to dismantle everything I know to be in active loving relationship and I'm willing to sit in profound discomfort sometimes in order for someone else who's more marginalized, more impacted, more at risk, um, more traumatized so they can actually shift out of pain. Like it's literally taking the world that I know and trusting that, that I have the spiritual practices in place to hold me while I basically blow up everything I know in this, in this loving way, right? It is that little radical, radical shift. I was doing some, when we were, I knew we were going to be having this conversation, I went back and read some of the stuff that, that has informed me. And, um, and there's this whole concept, I mean, a lot of radical welcome is actually talked about in, in congregational or in church space, right? Um, but it's this idea of, um, you know, that you can have invitation, which is really the invitation to assimilate, right? It comes out of an Episcopal um, approach. And it, or you can have inclusion, right, which is sort of incorporation. But we all stay our own little island, right? Like you can come in, and I'm not going to ask you to be like me, but I'm certainly not going to change me or the world that you're being invited into. Um, but what radical welcome is, is incarnation. It's that we co-create space together and it's this idea that 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 everyone comes in 
and everyone's voice, everyone's presence, and everyone's power is welcome. And that's really, I think, at the root of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if one is in a space of radical welcome, uh, you mentioned that it requires or... Um, allows us to give up everything we know and be in the place of discomfort as we co-create something we can't even yet imagine. Um, How do we sit in that discomfort when it seems to me systems of oppression have all these defensive mechanisms that come up to keep us, you know, in the status quo? What, What are some ways that we can do that when it gets really uncomfortable? Well, I think if, if you're really uncomfortable, you're on the right track, right? If, if, if we've leapt over discomfort um, and heartbreak to bliss, I have some concerns about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, I mean, that's where if, if, you know, we're talking to a yoga audience, right? But, but that's where spiritual practice of any sort, and I really use that broadly. Um, I don't mean that necessarily as um, that you have to believe in a divine, but, but that centering practices, practices that call us home, practices that allow our nervous system to downregulate, Practices that allow us to both touch our strength and our softness, you know, that allow us to remember our fight and sit in heartbreak, like building in those actual practices. And for me, yoga has been a huge part of that embodied practice. I don't necessarily think that's for everyone, but it has been central to me. Um, And I really feel like we have to do that as individuals, particularly those of us who are engaged in transformational work, um, whether we're new to the party or we've been doing this for 40 years, you know, and, and sometimes I think the 40-year part needs a bit more. Um, but we have to have individual practices. And then I think the next thing we need to do is we need to reach out and have communal practice, right? We need to actually be engaged in collective self-care. Um, and in that, that's, that's where the resilience comes from. Because resilience does not come from this place of um, bliss. It doesn't come from that. It comes from being shredded over and over again and still showing up. Like the rejuvenation, the resilience, the hitting my knees um, and really hitting my knees. Like skin knees, you know, a bloody mess. Um, But having both individual practices and communal practices that allow that to be resilient and sustainable is a huge part of what we do. And I think the yoga community, um, sometimes whether it knows it or not, um, has this resource that is largely untapped for this particular purpose. And that resource being the various practices and philosophies and uh, ways of being? That embodied practice. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the things that drew me to this work because I've been doing feminist social change in and outside of the academy for a while, and um, I thought I felt like we were doing a really good job, except for the embodied piece, man. Um, I just—it certainly took its toll on me and my heart, um, but I also saw it taking its toll on my colleagues and on my students. And I felt like, as a feminist academic teacher, we were missing a piece, and that piece to me was the embodied piece. Um, at the same time, I think that there—you—and you've hinted at this. The tendency to jump right to bliss um, scares me a little bit because there's this sometimes, not all the time and not with everybody, but there is sometimes this framing that hard talk is a negativity 
instead of the necessary work that mm -hmm. has to be done, right? Mm -hmm. And the sense that that um, the the spaces that get constructed as blissful are not experienced that way by everybody, right? right? Mm -hmm. They can be very unwelcoming spaces. Right. Um, so I really appreciate that you you're kind of reframing this a, a little bit. Um, there's something else I was going to say. Oh, you were mentioning this notion of resilience, and I just was recently at a weekend with um, a social justice anti-racism weekend with mm -hmm. contemplative practitioners from a lot of different practices. And, um, you know, there were some moments where the conversations got hard, um, as, they, I, as they do if they're real, I think, and authentic. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the weekend, we danced together to drumming, right? And that was a, such a more intimate and realistic and powerful experience as a community because we had gone through that hard work. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so let me, you mentioned something about um, co-creating spaces and everyone comes together um, prepared to be changed. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like, I could see how that's my um, obligation as a person who has a lot of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. It's my responsibility to be willing to be changed and be moved out of my comfort zone. What about the person who says, but I've never been able to be who I am safely. Mm -hmm. So I want that before I offer myself up to be changed. Mm -hmm. When society is encouraging me to be changed all the time in a way that doesn't let me be me. What, how does that fit into your concept of radical welcome? It's a good question and I think, um, and I appreciate the asking because it, I, I think power sharing is never, it, in order for us to have the, a just world, right, which is sort of what we're, we're talking about here, um, that, that power discomfort is, experiences, it needs to be uneven, but it needs to be intentionally inverted. Um, and so, you know, I often tell people that that when we're engaged in transformational work, um, and we're you know we're we're trying to to make spaces accessible and make practices accessible, um, to not expect that to be a one-to-one -one relationship, right? Like, I think where we get stuck, um, particularly with folks who have privilege, get stuck is that they really earnestly, and I mean earnestly with all their heart, do all this work and then experience folks coming in is not grateful, mm. right? And, and what I often, I've had this conversation with, with people a number of times, which is sometimes for folks of privilege, it's our karmic relation, it's our karmic duty to sort of know that I gotta take this one for the team, right? Like, like we're gonna work this out and I can't be looking for that reward to be immediate or in my lifetime. And so that's a big part of it. Um, you know, as somebody who, you know, as, as a trans man, as somebody, you know, who has sort of struggled in mainstream yoga space, um, there's some work for me to do. There's some work for me to do that that um, is sometimes hard, which is holding on to hope mm. that, that, that the world can change, right? Is, is and, I, it, and it doesn't mean, for me, you know, it doesn't mean, like, taking off all my armor and running in like a squishy human being who's going to get kicked. It means like, sometimes for me it's like, do I dare to poke my head in the door and hope? Like, 
And that actually sometimes takes a huge amount of effort. Um, but also I think the other thing that, that is really important to, to remember is that when I'm talking about transforming space, I'm not really talking about one big room, right? Um, it's really important. I just spent, um, I was in Chicago um, in February or March, and it was a gathering of, um, it was for the Insight, the, the Color of Violence Conference, but the gathering I was at was, you know, 100, 120 trans folks. It was, it was phenomenal because it was almost 90% trans women of color. Um, I think five of us were trans folks who were white of 100, 120. Um, and it was heartbreaking to sit into the story after story after story. I know the stories, but to allow myself to fully just bear witness just shredded me. But it's that allowing space where that's not my that's not my you know if this is my community, but at the same time it's, I'm not I'm, I need not to be driving the bus, right? Um, but. Those kinds of things. That's where I think what I'm talking about about allowing um, resources to be diverted from who currently has them into spaces and communities who really need them. You know, and so people made room, made space. People were flown into Chicago. There was resources dumped into um, a, creating a safe container for trans women of color to come together and hear their own stories about power. Because, you know, the stories about suffering, the media exploits those all the time. But it's so rare for 120 trans folks of color to come into a room and share the ways in which they're kicking ass, right? The ways in which they have taken and created organizations out of nothing. Like, that is partly the work that has to be done, is allowing those spaces where people don't have to be as guarded, you know, and don't have to be as armored, so that they can heal, and that does not have, it actually never should be under a white gaze, right? But folks who have privilege and resources do have a role in creating um, this, you know, this sort of infrastructure or creating the funding, literally sometimes, the funding that can allow that level of hope to happen. Because I know, I mean, I've watched it happen in the weeks since then that I've watched these women who, you know, just were so excited to see this have happened, and they carried that fire boom, back out the room, back into the mainstream community, right? And and so I think that happens, um, but I think it really needs to be um, this really careful, intentional understanding that that stuff isn't going to happen under a privileged gaze. Like, it's going to happen in safe spaces, and that's actually necessary. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, can you talk a little bit, and maybe you've addressed some of it, but can you talk a little bit about how your spiritual activism and your social justice work have come together specifically around queer communities mm -hmm. or in queer communities? You know, it, um, it, it sort of for me has, has been this evolutionary process, and it's very interesting that it has come, you know, you, you talked about the academy, right, like that, that sort of um, intellectual um, approach to activism, which is my first introduction to feminism, my first introduction to most things, um, felt inaccessible for me, you know, um, because it felt so heavily intellectual. Mm -hmm. um, and it 
was missing something. It didn't feed my soul. Um, it just sort of made me angry. Um, because people were telling me that the world needed to change, but I just saw people being really cranky. And it, it, and as I was young, you know, and I was, I was young and I was falling apart, you know, and there was no, there was no, no um, cuddliness to the experience at all, right? And, and I was the person like, you know, it, you know, I was, it was in need of cuddling, you know, as a young, you know, young person. So, um, as I got sober, um, I started, I was raised Catholic and it, you know, we had a, um, a less than amicable breakup as a teenager, you know, and so, um, you know, and as a, as, as somebody who's gender nonconforming, as a queer person, I was actively told I didn't have, I didn't belong. I was actively told um, that my particular um, way of showing up in the world um, was an aberration of the devil. That's what I was told. And so as I was getting sober, I got sober young, I was 23, um, I had access to 12-step spirituality. And in that, I heard um, that, that the divine and I, whatever I can, you know, can made the, that to be, um, had an individual relationship that needed nobody to intercede. And you can imagine being raised Catholic, that was sort of revolutionary. Um, and nobody made me choose what I believe before I could begin to have a conversation with the divine. Mm -hmm. And that started me being able to go back and pay attention to all of the ways in which I had felt loved and cared for as a kid, um, but could not understand. But what I found when I, as I was sort of like squeaking my way out in public, was that I could, I could be really radical and queer, but the minute I talked about being a, having this spiritual path, it sort of, I lost my street cred. Like, I, it dumbed me down somehow. Like, it couldn't be radical. People just, you know, there was this sort of bias against being radical and being a person of faith. And then in faith-based space, being queer, you know, and really pushing the edges of gender and those kinds of things um, slammed against each other. So I felt like I was between a rock and a hard place about where I came out in which community I was in. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that that was happening around me as well. And so a big part of the work that I'm called to do and that I do particularly within the queer and trans community is actually making um, spiritual practice accessible, like actually letting people know that we're out there, like we're out there and we're practicing. And some of us actually can find peace and a calling back in the spiritual path of our childhood. And some of us, you know, can actually shop around and find something else that resonates. And some of us have to hobble together um, bits and pieces of what works. But you know, I've had queer and trans youth come up to me in conferences after I've spoken or, or a bunch of us have done, you know, ritual and things like that. Um, and said, I didn't know that I had access to that. Mm. You know, like, I didn't know that radical could look like that. You know, and that's huge because the, you know, the, the suicide, you know, the suicide rates, you know, for trans folks is 40%, you know, and, and I know that personally, you know, and so, when someone tells me that they they have yet another tool that can help them survive, that they they know that they can access um, something when they hit their knees, yeah. that that that's huge for me, and that's what this is about. Is about you know, it's not about being pretty, like it's you know, and I mean that aesthetically. I mean that in terms of I don't want to look spiritual. Like I don't care, you know. What I care about is that when you meet me, there's a palpable presence of care. Mm -hmm. Care for myself, because that's radical for trans folks to see. Um, care for my community, 
that emanates from me and, and that if enough of us do that, that we transform the lived experience of people who are either kids, you know, my kids growing, coming up in the trans community, or my elders who have been isolated and alone. You know, and that for me is, is the reason I show up. You know, because it is heartbreaking work to do. Yeah. Right? It's gut-wrenchingly painful to do. To bear witness to my own suffering is bad enough, you know. But to leave myself open to heartbreak because I know my community is hurting is is just devastating on so many levels. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a magic that happens. Um, when we allow people to be fully seen and fully heard mm -hmm. um, without expectation that that's going to flower into this, I don't know, unicorns and rainbows, like, I don't care, you know, but that we let people just breathe. Yeah. Figuratively and literally breathe. Yeah. Um, and that happens so little for my community as well mm -hmm. and, and so many other communities in the world. And I think that's, that's, you know, as someone who's been living with AIDS now for, you know, been living with HIV for 20 years and AIDS for 15. Um, and it, it taught me early about um, not taking time for granted and not taking um, legacy for granted. Um, and if I, you know, that's the thing I want people to remember about me, is that, um, is that bearing witness with an open heart was a radical act. Like, that matters to me in the world. I'm just getting to know you, Teo, but one of the things that moves me so powerfully about you is that your, your presence of care and compassion combined with a willingness to show up is really palpable. It, it really is. And it, it um, sometimes in some communities of social change, I find that missing. And the ability to hold both really powerfully uh, is, is, I think, something that we absolutely need. And at one point in a previous conversation, you made a distinction between something I want to say maybe you called squishy love, which made me giggle, and something that you called fierce love. Right. Can you yeah. talk to me about the difference that you see between the two? Absolutely. You know, it's funny, when, when um, my partner is... Um, you use, you can use your first list. And he will often talk about the fact that, that love is his religion, like that's sort of the core at which, right? Yeah. And, you know, and you see the eye, eyes roll, right? Oh God, you know, like, you know, love's not gonna like, you know, go bear out the world, it's not gonna change anything. Um, and I think people mistake love as, as squishy, right? As soft, um, as naive. Um, and really what I'm talking about is this, um, radical, um, edgy, uh, you know, assertive love. It's, 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 a, it's a full on show up um, experience that isn't comfortable. It isn't um, this um, feel good, you know, it, it is it allows you to show up with this open heart that moves mountains. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's different. It, it's not making everything okay. Mm -hmm. It is the fact that I really truly believe that love, and I really mean that as a, as a, as 
kindness in action, you know, right? As 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 unattached to the outcome, but as this embracing force. Because love is a force. Mm-hmm. Um, but it isn't, and it allows us, I think I think part of coming to, to this work with this fierce love allows everything to be messy, right? It's not, I'm not trying to create things up. So it allows us to make mistakes. It allows us to, to grapple with, with really uncomfortable things. It allows us to stay in unknowing because it is this full-on resilient care, right? And, and, and care and compassion and kindness allows for more than um, that prettiness to show up, that, that, that you know, um, I, I watched the Reverend, uh, Reverend Dr. James Forbes preach um, last night, and he talked about, um, you know, this idea that the, you know, the, the genesis and the, um, the idea of fig leaves being um, denial and shame and, mm-hmm. and that we want to pretty ourselves up for the world. You know, and he talked about stripping that away, um, and and being clothed in God's grace. Genesis um, chapter three, verse twenty-one. You know, and I'm not Christian, but that's the thing I'm talking about, which is this this compassion and kindness and love that allows for grace. You know, and I think people often mistake that. And anyone that knows me knows. I mean, you've experienced it, but. I'm not squishy, you know. I'm 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 certainly a bear hug sort, but I'm not squishy, you know. I will push, mm-hmm. I will push people hard, um, but generally speaking, if people are open to it, they're going to know that they're loved while I'm pushing them hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like I could talk to you about this all day, <laughs> but we are approaching the end of our podcast, um, and I think you've opened so many powerful. Um, ways of being and thinking in this conversation. Do you have anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? You know, I think the thing I want people to hear, and I don't think we, we say it enough, is um, step into uncertainty. There's no shame. Right? Um, we want to have all of our ducks in a row before we, we go public. Right? And, and I think part of what Places, you know, like with coalitions like the Yoga Body Image Coalition, um, organizations like Off the Mat, are creating containers, and I, it's my highest hope. I think we have a lot of work to do, but it's my highest hope that we're creating containers where people can step into uncertainty and know that that's needed. Discomfort and uncertainty are needed if we're going to actually transform. Um, and don't wait. And if find loving community, like find us, find, you know, I'm faculty with Off the Map, find the container that can hold uncertainty because we need to transform the world. Absolutely. What a powerful ending. Thank you, Teo, so much for talking with us today. Absolutely. We've been talking today with Teo Drake, and you can learn more um, on his blog, uh, Roots Grow Grow the Tree, is that correct? It's a really powerful, um, moving conversation you have going there. And he also leads trainings with Off the Mat Into the World, some powerful ones as well. Thank you, Teo. Thanks so much.